Well, good morning and um, welcome to what has amounted to the Southridge Story Hour for the last uh, two weeks of our Hope Lives series. It seems like the motif of the month is to be telling stories. A couple weeks ago, uh, Tim Arnold introduced our uh, hometown missionary series by telling stories about that were uh, inspired us and challenged us to live like a missionary right where God has called us to be already in the world. And he told the story about Margaret and her work with migrant workers in Lincoln. And he told the story of his grandfather and his work with the First Nations outside of Sarnia. And he told about 35 or 40 other stories somewhere in between. I lost count in the high teens, I think. Uh, but they were, it's just, it was an amazing thing just to sit and to hear the stories the way God wants to use us uh, right where we're at. And then last week, Jeff got up uh, and told one story for 35 or 40 minutes uh, about the journey that his family has been on in being used by God in being hometown missionaries, the way that God has been using them, but also growing them um, through their partnership, not only with the shelter at our Glenridge location, but with compassion and child sponsorship and so on. And so listen, not one to, to ever want to miss a party. I don't want to miss out on the storytelling game. And so I want to open this morning by telling a story of a missionary named Brian. I don't know uh, Brian personally, but I've heard him tell the story, the time of when he moved his family. He's a Christian professor and an economist and I want to tell the story of a time when he moved his family from the United States uh, to Kampala, Uganda for five months on a sabbatical from teaching, where he was going to be doing ministry in the country of Uganda. One of the things that Brian said he did while they were over there, he teamed up with this um, local Ugandan denominational official, a woman by the name of Elizabeth, and together in this small church, in the destitute slums of Kampala, Uganda, they taught a small business skills course to a group of about 100 refugees who had fled the civil war in the north and who were trying to make a new life for themselves in the city of Kampala by you know, selling used clothes or drying fish or making charcoal or what have you. And, and Brian said the whole time they were there, he and Elizabeth were trying to teach these young entrepreneurs how to fish, trying to help them better their lives. He said God was doing amazing things uh, through this class that they were teaching. In fact, one night Elizabeth asked whether God had done anything in anybody's life from the lesson the week before, and this old woman put up her hand. And she said, you know, I've been a witch doctor in this community for many decades but she said, after the lesson last week, I went back to church for the first time in more 20 years. And she said, what, what do I do now? And right there in the midst of the class environment, Elizabeth led this woman through an exercise of confessing her sin, including all of her you know, witchcraft and deceit, including her alcohol addiction, which was running her about $27 a day, which was more than the average refugee in the class was earning in a month. And she went and got the medicinal herbs from her home and she brought them back to the class and she, she burned them on the spot and then prayed with Elizabeth to receive Christ as her savior. Brian said it was one of the most amazing things he's ever been a part of in his entire life. 
So as the weeks went by, you could see on Grace's face, that was what they called her, on Grace's face as she would come back to class, just this radiant glow and she would tell these stories about what God was teaching her, the ways that God was growing her, until one Monday evening she didn't show up for class. Brian and Elizabeth asked around and one of the students thought they had heard that Grace was sick and maybe they said somebody should go check on her. And so Elizabeth and Brian left the class there in that tiny church of St. Luke's in the middle of the Kampala slums and they went to Grace's house right in the central part of the, the worst slums in Kampala. He talks about walking through rivers of filth in, in, in the shanty town and they came into Elizabeth's tiny one-room shanty hut to see her lying in the fetal position on a mat in the middle of the dirt floor. She was obviously in incredible agony. She confided in Elizabeth that uh, she had contracted tonsillitis. And since she is an HIV patient, the hospital refuses to treat her. And so she had paid a neighbor to cut out her tonsils with a kitchen knife. And now she was incredibly infected and without penicillin she was probably going to die Brian pulled Elizabeth aside and asked you know is penicillin available and and Elizabeth said yes but it costs like 15,000 Ugandan dollars which is about eight bucks U.S. Brian said he reached into his pocket and he pulled out the money without even thinking but he handed it over to Elizabeth and sent her to get the Medicine. He said no one in the class could believe it a week later when Grace walked into the classroom looking as fresh, as young, as healthy, as vibrant as she ever had. Praising God that he had not only saved her soul, but he had saved her life through the work of Brian and Elizabeth in the slums of Kampala. It's, he said it's the most incredible experience he's ever had the kind of story you want to tell in a sermon the kind of story you want to tell at a fundraising event right of God of God lifting people out of poverty in the in the slums of Africa of of the light of Christ penetrating into the darkness of these terrible areas witch doctors putting their faith in Jesus uh, of saving people's lives by being able to provide medicine that they otherwise wouldn't have had Brian said when he got on the plane to fly home a week or two later, he said the adrenaline was still pumping. He said, but by the time he got back to the U.S., he had spent most of his flight weeping, actually. Broken. Actually repenting before God, confessing the sin of handing over $8 to buy this woman penicillin wishing that he could have a do-over well what's that all about I mean how could you live through this kind of experience that they had together and then at the end of it end up weeping and repenting and wishing that none of it had ever happened and that you could have a do-over well you see Brian has spent most of his life Teaching, learning about, and then teaching people about engaging in the kind of helping that doesn't hurt. What Brian knows better than anybody else 
is that there is a kind of helping that we sometimes get involved with that ends up hurting people more than it helps. And the reason Brian started to weep on the plane ride home was that he started to think about all of the people that he had hurt in the process of handing over his $8 U.S. and buying the penicillin for Grace. He thought about how he had hurt Grace. I mean, yes, Grace was going to die. She needed penicillin in the moment. The short-term need was for penicillin that would save her life. But Grace had long-term needs that were equally important that Brian had ignored. I mean, Grace was a witch doctor, someone who had made many enemies in the course of her lifetime. She was an HIV carrier, somebody who could not be count on the health care that she was going to need to survive. If Grace was going to survive long term, what she was going to need were stable relationships. She was going to need to be embedded in a community of people who were providing loving, supporting care around her. And Brian realized that by stepping in and providing $8, he had actually prevented some of those relationships with the refugee class or with the church in which they were meeting. He had prevented some of those relationships from forming. She'd become dependent on a guy who was going to leave in a week or two. And that was not going to help her for the rest of her life. He began to think about how he had injured the church and the the pastor of this church. I mean, here's this guy teaching and leading this tiny congregation in the middle of the darkness of the slums of Africa. This this tiny church that is uh, trying in the power of Christ to be a, a presence of the love of Christ in the community. A church that in that moment had the opportunity to step forward and to be the ones who provided grace, the penicillin that saved her life. They had the opportunity to become a beacon of Christ's love in the slums of Kampala. To be known for the compassion and mercy and love that they were willing to pour out on the people who live in their community except when Whitey pulled out his eight bucks he solved the problem before the church had any opportunity to get involved in fact grace was well before the pastor even knew she was sick he robbed the church of an opportunity to have a ministry In the slums of Kampala. He thought about how he had hurt the refugees themselves. This was a community of people who for their whole life had been discriminated against. Because they were from an inferior tribe. People who had learned to live with shame. With feelings of being less than human. Of being worthless and unwanted. And right at that moment when Grace got sick, Brian realized in retrospect they had the opportunity to actually realize the dignity and worth and value of themselves as a human being. They had the opportunity to realize the difference that they themselves could make in other people's lives if they had been allowed to be a part of the solution to Grace's problem. But instead, the message they received was, sorry guys, When the chips are down, what you really need is a Westerner with American cash. That's how you really solve problems. You you guys were right. You, You actually can't solve these problems yourself. He thought about how he hurt himself. 
I mean, not only had he reinforced their feelings of shame and inferiority, he had reinforced his Western feelings of arrogance and superiority, this Messiah complex that we live with. When we think about poverty as essentially being a lack of material resources, well, then the solution to poverty is the thing that we have in spades, which is cash. Therefore, we live with the mentality that says we're the solution to everybody else's problem. Everybody else needs what we have. And it's that kind of arrogance that hurts us. He thought about the ways that he had robbed himself of the opportunity to learn from this church and from this class of refugees, to learn from their creativity and their compassion, to learn from how they would have uh, pooled their resources and put their heads together to solve Grace's problem if he had let them get involved. But he'd never have that chance to learn from them because he behaved as though he already knew the best way to solve every problem. So the reality is that as much as the ways that we want to get involved with people, as much as what often feels instinctively right, what often feels instinctively compassionate, and and what feels like we are being compelled by the love of Christ to do, when you take a step back and you think about it, sometimes you can begin to identify ways in which that help can hurt more than it helps. Not just the people you're trying to serve, but yourself as well. And so what I want to do with the time that we have left this morning is I want to walk us as a community through five values that we're beginning to discern as a church. Five values that are beginning to govern the ways in which we think about going to help. Because we believe that these five values can help protect us from providing the kind of help that hurts more than it helps. It can empower us to help by helping rather than the kind of help that actually ends up hurting. I'm going to say we haven't lived these values perfectly all the time. These may not even be all the values. You may not even agree with our values. But this is how we're thinking these days about what it looks like to engage in helping without hurting. So five values. Value number one is the value of humility. By humility, what I mean is that we strive to put others' needs ahead of our plans. This was part of Brian's failing is that he didn't go into the situation with humility. He went in with arrogance and he just sort of assumed that he knew the best way to solve the problem that he was confronted with. Humility is a way of intentionally taking a step back and protecting ourselves from the mentality that says, I assume I know what's wrong. I know what the best way to fix it is and I'm the person to fix it. It, it is protecting us from indulging our own Messiah complex, our own arrogance. Conversely, it's helping us protect others from reinforcing the sense of shame that says, actually, you don't know what's wrong and you can't help yourself. Humility is putting others' needs ahead of your plans. Look at Proverbs chapter 18, starting verse 12. It says, before destruction, the heart of a person is proud. 
But humility comes before honor. What the proverbial writer is saying is that every time you act out of pride, destruction, destructive behavior is the only thing that can come out of that kind of arrogance. And this is how he fleshes it out. He says, the one who gives an answer before he listens, that is his folly and shame. To act like you have the answer before you've listened long enough to even understand the problem, one translation says, that is stupid and shameful. And we want to try and become the kind of community that gets good at listening. That doesn't show up with our own answers and our own ideas and our own agendas about what's going to be best and how we're going to implement it. But instead is willing to set those ideas aside and to listen to those who have experience in serving the community that we're getting involved in. And and those who are a part of the community that we're getting involved with. Those who we are seeking to serve. Listening to everybody else before we presume to suggest an answer. So what does that mean? It means that when you show up to help, whether at an anchor cause, whether at a shelter, one of our farms at Rose City Kids, wherever it happens to be, somewhere in your own life, when you show up to help, you don't show up with the attitude that says, here I am, and here's how I can help, which sort of arrogantly assumes that you already know the problem and you're the one to fix it. A better attitude would be to show up and say, here I am, how can I help? But even that attitude assumes that you're the solution to somebody else's problem. The best attitude to show up with would be, here I am. What do I do now? It's kind of this attitude of complete and utter openness to being directed by people who know better than you what the situation is and who can understand the best the role that you can play in bringing help to people without hurting them. This is true even for uh, folks who are traveling overseas. God has before and he's going to again call families from our community to travel to other parts of the world to contribute something. And, And Brian would say that if God is calling you to relocate your family to another part of the world, that you should move to that part of the world and just live there for five years. Just live there. Don't get funding, don't fundraise, don't get sent with dollars to do a ministry. Move your family there. If, you, if you're feeling called to Nicaragua, move to Nicaragua. Live like a Nicaraguan for five years. Become a regular citizen, a regular member of the community. Um, get to know your neighbors. Get a job. Get to understand the dynamics of the situation. Get to understand the area. Get to understand their worldview. Get to understand the history. Get to understand the issues. Talk to everybody. Listen to everybody for five years. Before you even attempt to put forward anything that sounds like an answer. That, friends. That's humility. And that's how you get involved in helping. Without hurting. We believe in humility. Number two, we believe in equality. What do I mean by equality? I mean this. Seek to receive as much as you give. So here's the thing about about why and how we get involved in these kinds of helping situations. We get involved because the love of Christ compels us, the New Testament says, because we're motivated by the compassion of Jesus and we just want to make a difference. We want to help. And that is awesome. It's just that the good intentions paving company really only paves roads to one destination. 
is kind of the problem. See, the reality check is that when you show up to help, and I don't care who you are, you, me, anybody, when you show up to help, this is what's real about you. You need more help from others than you have help to offer to others. That's true of everybody. We all need more help than we have to offer. See, when you think about poverty as the lack of money, well, then we don't need any help because we have that. But Brian says that poverty isn't a lack of money. Brian says poverty is what results from broken relationships with God and with ourselves and with each other and with the world. And if that's true, then every single one of us lives in some form of poverty. It's not all equally severe or destitute. And I'm not trying to equate our poverty with that extreme poverty of the majority world and so on. That's horrendous. But we all live in some kind of poverty. We all need help spiritually in our life with God. We all need help mentally and emotionally in our life with ourselves. We all need help relationally in our life with each other. We all need help creationally and vocationally in our life in the world. We all need help. We all need to be surrounded by people who can be pouring into us and helping us become everything God's created us to be, even while we're helping other people become what God's created them to be. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says this. He says, our desire is that there would be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality, not financial equality, that you have to give enough money so that everybody has the same. Contribution equality. That you, out of the, uh, what you have in abundance, which might be cash, that's what you give because you have that to give. And other people will give what they have to give. Maybe it'll be time. Maybe it'll be relationship. Maybe it'll be experience in recovery. And as you offer what you have in abundance and they offer what they have in abundance, we all contribute to each other and we are all in mutual relationship. We are all coming to wholeness and holiness in our relationship with God. We're all lifting ourselves out of poverty. See, 59 times in the New Testament, the Bible says that we should do stuff to one another, love one another, forgive one another, pray for one another, forgive one another, bear with one another, encourage one another. And every time I read those, what I read is, oh yeah, I should be doing those for other people. But the radical thought of the one another's of the New Testament is that I have to enter every situation as open, open and vulnerable to allowing someone else to do those things to me as I am ready to do them to somebody else. That's equality. It means realizing that every single person you're going to help is your equal in every single way, intellectually, Ability-wise, relationally, spiritually, they are your equal and they're superior to you in some ways. You have a lot to learn from the very people you're trying to help. And so as you go and you contribute what you have and they contribute what you have, we all get better. There's a friend that I've had at the Glenridge location for 10 years now. He came originally through the shelter, but he's been around our church for almost a decade. And over the years, we've had Lots of good conversations where I've helped contribute perspective on what the Bible says about this or that issue about following Jesus. That's what I have to offer. It's what I have in abundance is opinions. And so that's what I've offered. But about a month ago, we bumped into each other in the hallway and he pulled me aside into a corner. And he called me out in the way I'd been behaving with him as a friend. 
See, I'd made some assumptions about him and about some choices that he'd made that um, I'd never talked to him about, but I had made some kind of sly reference to it, snarky, you know, kind of passive aggressive. He pulled me into a corner and he put his finger in my chest and he said, hey, I didn't appreciate that. He says, if you have something to say to me, you say it to me. We're better friends than that. And I'm a big boy and I can take it. So you want to talk to me, you talk to me. I'm going to tell you something, friends. I think in that moment, he taught me more about what it means to speak the truth in love in friendship than I have ever taught him about what the Bible says about anything. That's equality. That's what we believe in. You come seeking to be taught more than you're seeking to teach. Number three, humility, equality. Number three, dignity. We don't do for other people what they can do for them. I mean, sometimes we do for other people what they can do for themselves because we're just kind. My wife says, hey, can you do the laundry for me? I don't answer and say, no, you can do that for yourself because our couch is not that comfortable. Um, We don't, but we try not to do things for other people that they can do for themselves. See, I keep mentioning this. We think of poverty as material lack. When the UN asked the global poor to describe poverty. They didn't talk about lacking money. You know what they talked about? Lacking dignity. They described poverty in terms of shame. They said they feel less than human. They feel ostracized and excluded and voiceless and helpless and hopeless. Which means that as far as the global poor are concerned, what they need more than money is to feel the dignity of being a human being who has the power to control their circumstances. That's what it means to live the dignity of being a human being. In Psalm 8, it says, you have made human beings a little lower than the angels. Actually, the text says, than the gods. You have made human beings as demigods, is really what it means. And you've crowned them with glory and honor. You've made them rulers over the works of your hands. And you've put everything under their feet. A human being in our world is a remarkable creature. Every human being you've ever met has the dignity of being created in the image of God as a virtual demigod in the world. In the words of Bill Murray in Groundhog Day, not the God, but a God. And the dignity that we have as human beings is derived at least in part from our ability, the power and authority that God has given us to control and creatively shape our lives and our circumstances and our world, not just for ourselves, but for other people. Which means that when we rush in with our cash to solve other people's problems that they could have solved themselves given the time and the energy, We have stripped people of their dignity, disempowered them, and locked them in a cycle of poverty. We have trained people to be impoverished. I remember when I was in Jamaica, teaching at Jamaica Bible College, I talked to one of the students who pulled me aside and said, listen, I'm out of cash, and I gotta drop out of school. If I don't find money to pay for tuition for next term, can you help me? Can you give me money? And... uh, I didn't know what to say, so I said, you got to talk to your principal about that. And I went and talked to the principal myself about this. I let him know that this had happened. And the principal took me outside, and he pointed to a pile of cinder blocks that were lying in the yard. He said, do you know what this student does for a living by trade? 
said, they're a mason. And I've shown them that pile of cinder blocks and said, I will pay you for every hour that you spend using those blocks to build our unfinished library and you will earn more than enough money uh, to pay for your tuition for the next year to come. But he said he won't do it because he's been locked into a mentality that all many young Jamaicans have, which is the answer to your problems is cash from North America. That's the way our giving mentality teaches people to think. So when it comes to dignity, we try to limit one-way giving to emergency situations. When literally the house is burning down, the wheels are coming off, somebody is going to lose their life if cash is not infused right now, that's when we feel okay about giving. In every other circumstance, we try and creatively think about long-term development. Instead, what we try to do is respect and leverage the abilities and the experiences and the resources of the person involved. How can we help them become the solution to their own problem or and or we try and empower and support the community around them to be the support that they need so that locals take care of locals so that they together as a community become the solution their own problem it's a way of teaching them dignity and breaking the cycle of dependence and helping people become everything God's created them to be which is how we lift people out of poverty uh, number four, we believe in the value of community. And I got to pick up the pace a little bit because honestly, together, everyone accomplishes more. God created human beings, not as individuals, but to be embedded in community. He created us for relationship. He created us in relationship. He created us to flourish through relationship. God created us to be in relationship with other people. That's why we say the two heads are better than one. And it's why we as a community really don't get excited about lone rangers who are all excited to go out and solve a particular problem or cause or issue in their world. People are just going to go off on their own or maybe with one tonto, you know, and get it done. We don't get excited about that kind of helping. We believe in the kind of helping that is derived in community, discerned through the community or discerned by the community, executed through the community, blessed by by the community and has the goal of connecting people to the community. We believe in community. We believe in doing this together as a team. No one doing it on their own. Um, and the community, I'm just going to be really frank. The community that we believe in the most is the community of the church. In Matthew 10 it says, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, as you go proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you've received, freely give. We believe that the local church is the God-ordained, Jesus-commissioned agency, community through which God is bringing holistic healing through the world. And so, <coughs> excuse me, with all due respect to NGOs and charities and parachurch organizations, and we love to partner with them as much as we can. 
but we like to work with the church and through the church and by the church and for the church. We like to empower churches we, because we believe that only the church is commissioned and empowered by God to bring holistic healing to a world that is broken and hurting and dying. We will always, as a community, we will always choose helping that comes through the church. Always. Finally, humility, quality, dignity, community. Number five, longevity. We're in it for the long haul, friends. It's not the way our culture does it. You know, we cook with a microwave because eight minutes is too long to wait for a plate of spaghetti. Um, we solve our money problems by borrowing more and buying lottery tickets. We market our workout routines and our church devotionals in exactly the same way according to how little time you have to invest in doing it in order to get the benefit. That's what we like. Maximum benefit for minimum investment. Which is why in our culture, Facebook likes and retweets and cause-based awareness t-shirts and random acts of kindness are considered to be forms of justice. And they're not. They're nice things to do. Honestly, you want to buy the guy behind you a Timmy's? Go nuts. You want to give a toonie to a homeless person? Go crazy. It's a nice thing to do. Um, it might hurt more than it helps. And it's certainly not even close to the long-term solution that these people need for the poverty that they're facing. Oftentimes, those sort of quick hit, parachute parent, in and out kinds of ways of helping, what they do the most is they make us feel good about being involved without actually having to be involved. That's, honestly, that's what they do the most. As a community, we're committed to striving to impact people's lives, not just to improve their days, to show up reliably and consistently and committedly in relationship, the kind of relationship described in Hebrews chapter 10, where it says, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. We believe in the kind of community, the kind of relationships that keep showing up over the long haul towards the day when Jesus returns and brings healing to all of this. But healing is a journey that lasts a lifetime. And we want to journey with people through their entire journey of healing. We want to journey together through our journey of healing being committed to meeting together and spurring each other on to positive, productive relationships of loving God and loving ourselves and loving each other and loving the world in a way that brings us all to wholeness and holiness in Jesus Christ. That's what we're committed to. Not hit and run helping. We're committed to longevity and being in, in it for the long haul. And that's it, friends. That's how we've, those are the lenses that we've been wearing lately as we as a church think about the ways in which we're going to run our anchor causes, the ways in which we're going to get involved globally. This is why we're so excited about child survival because number one, we don't know the best way to help communities out of poverty. Number two, because we know that we have more to learn from the churches that we're partnering with around the world than we have to offer them in terms of helping them do what they're trying to do in their communities. Number three, because we believe in the dignity of watching local locals serving locals and lifting their own community out of poverty. We, we believe in the kind of community that works through the local church. And we believe in the long-term commitments of staying with the project until a, an aid-receiving community can become an aid-dispensing 
community. That's what we're committed to. That's why we've chosen to do child survival programs and child sponsorship rather than supporting 100 different missionaries at $100 a month. Because we want to focus our energy on the kind of helping that we believe best resonates with our values that are all motivated by trying to engage in a helping without hurting. And that's what we're inviting you into. And I have to tell you, friends, I am so incredibly proud of the kind of church community that you've been. The way that you have responded in the last 10 years as we've sorted this out, often through trial and error, of becoming the kind of community God is leading us to become. And we're still trying to sort it out. But you've hung in there for the hard conversations, for the difficult no's. We don't do that. For the protracted coffees that say, let me, un- let me help you understand why we're not going to get behind the thing you're excited about. You've hung in there. More than that, you've gotten involved, hundreds of you involved in our three anchor causes across three locations. More than 300 children being sponsored by our community. 350 more families being supported through child survival programs in seven different places around the world. Tens of thousands of dollars being given every single year to to launching child survival programs around the world. You have committed, you have been there, you've been a part of what we're doing and you've been doing away from the church, in quiet, where your pink dot is on your spot of the map, in your location, where God has called you to be a missionary, you have been living it. And these are the values that I'm inviting you to live out more intentionally than ever as you think about what it looks like for God to call you to be a hometown missionary. It's been an incredible journey. Over the last 10 years, highs and lows and hard and easy. and It's been the ride of a lifetime. And I wouldn't want to be in any other place than this. And I wouldn't want to be doing this with any other people than you. And I am so excited to see where God is leading us in the next 10 years. Take a look at the screen.